Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. We are in chapter 3, which is of um, God's decree. And basically, uh, God's decree, as we've talked about through uh, several weeks as we've talked through it, uh, God's decree is his plan, essentially, how he's decreed that things are going to happen in every aspect of life and existence. And uh, there is great divine mystery in this because there are things that the scriptures tell us that to us sometimes look like they are a contradiction. They look like they don't match um, the idea, for instance, of free will and yet man uh, being chosen by God before eternity, whether or not he'll be saved or not. How does that work together? Well, we can't explain exactly how that works together, but we know that the scripture says that that's true. So we have to accept that that's the case. Um, and this is true for every area of God's decree as we talk through it. Those things that uh, we often think are horrible, are terrible, things that happen. And uh, somehow, you know, a lot of Christians have gotten to the place where they view those things as uh, surprises to God, that somehow he didn't know this was going to happen, or he didn't plan for this, or whatever. And so then he has to react. And of course, if that's the truth, he's not God. He's not God. How could he be God if he had no idea that something was actually going to happen? It's impossible for that to be the case. So, we've been working through paragraph one. We've gotten to the section where we talked about uh, the title of the, in the outline is um, From Implying the Era of Fatalism. And so the idea of this, as we worked through it last week, let me just back up. Just to, We're not going to read through everything here, but let's see what John Calvin had to say because he gave a pretty good summary of this idea of this, that God's decree does not mean fatalism for us, or we shouldn't look at it as fatalism. He said, It's an insufferable wickedness to think that we, who can hardly crawl on the earth, should take nothing as true except what submits itself to investigation by our eyes. But because of the dense darkness of the human mind, by which all knowledge is rendered thin and perishable, Scripture builds for us a higher watchtower from which to observe God, overruling all the works of men, so as to direct them to the end appointed by him. So what he's saying is, how dare we, this wickedness that he says, how dare we, with our thin minds, our frail minds, who can hardly walk, exist on earth, think that somehow we would know better than God what's happening and how it happens, and not realize that there are things that God is doing for his glory, for his will, that are not what we would choose. So he's saying that the scripture itself gives us this high watchtower. The scripture gives us this place that which we can sit, this height that we can be at, where we can look down and we can see some of God's plan. Do we see it clearly? No. I think the only thing that Calvin could have added, which he could have done better, is if he just said, it gives us a higher watchtower from which to observe God ruling all the works of men, through, though veiled through the clouds. That would have been a more accurate way, right? So the scripture gives us this idea of this, this, we can look down and see that God is moving all these things in accordance with his will, but we don't see everything, do we? We don't see how he's using everything, how he's working everything, how everything is coming together. We don't, we don't see that all, but we do see something, and the scripture tells us that this is what's happening, which is obviously the most important thing. All right. Uh... Another quote, let's skip on that. All right, so we caught up. So, the normal operations of creation are governed by God, which proves his intimate involvement in carrying out his decree. This also reflects God's wisdom, God's power, and God's faithfulness. So, think about that for a second. We're talking about 
the normal operations of creation are governed by God. So what are we talking about there? Well, the easiest one for us to go to is the weather, right? Did God have any control of whether or not it would rain? Of course he has control over it. Now, has he set into motion, has he put things in place that will continue to operate? Yes, he spun the earth on its axis. He spun it around the sun in its rotation. He set the moon and the sun so that they would give us light by day and light by night. The scriptures tell us all these things, right? But there are still so many things that man has absolutely no idea why they happen. Why is it that there are some seasons where there is a lot more rain and other seasons where there's not? Why is it that there are the El Nino winds sometimes and sometimes there's not? Sometimes there are El Nino winds, but sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not bad. Why is that? Why do we have more rain sometimes than other times? Why, is there, why do all these things happen? Does God control the fires in Quebec? Is he in control of that? Or is he unable to control that? Who directs the lightning that starts a fire? God. Does God have in place parts of weather, parts of the environment, where lightning can strike? Of course. But who directs it? Just like you said in Job, he directs the whirlwind. He is the one who directs it. Is there a mistake when a hurricane hits land at a certain place and comes across? Is there a mistake when a tornado hits? Is God shocked to see, oh, wow, didn't see that one coming? That's not the way it works. God is in control. God is directing things. Not only the things of creation like this that we see, these natural things, normal operations, but also for us. Do we not react to things that happen? Stimulus, you could say, right? Somebody says something to you the wrong way. Somebody does something. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Do these things not stimulate you to some degree? They do, right? They do. Somebody makes some speech and says something that riles you up, right? Or somebody preaches a message and you feel convicted and compelled, right? Does God know that those things will compel you? And that for you to hear those things will actually help, would actually cause a reaction in you? He sure does. Does he know you well enough to know how you're going to respond to those things? At any given moment? And look, okay, so let's, let's make sure we realize this, right? Brands could preach his message this morning, and you might have reaction, let's call it reaction A, right? Whatever it is. You have reaction A. Then, Brands preaches the same message in a month, and you don't have the same reaction. You have reaction B, a different reaction. Or he could preach it again in another month, every month, same message. Reaction C, different message. Maybe that reaction is, I'm getting tired of this. No, I don't. You, you see what I'm saying, right? Though You could have a different reaction, just like when you read the scriptures. You see, it, it speaks to you one way, you read it another time, another, another later, and it has another reaction it causes in you, right? This is the way. God knows how you're going to react at any given moment. Any given moment. Have you ever been in a message or in a class or something like that and somebody preaches or teaches something and you say, man, that really speaks to what's been bothering me lately, right? Or later, maybe, something happens and you're like, you recall back to that message. You call, recall back to that scripture you read. You recall back and that actually, that actually speaks to you at that moment. Did God know this was going to happen? Or was this a surprise to him? He knew. 
And he knows how you're going to react. He knows. So if God knows how you're going to react, and he causes things to happen, isn't the conclusion directed by God? Is he going to, well, let's see what happens if I do this to Tom. Is that what God's saying? The experiment? If that was the case, there could be no prophecy. Would you agree? If that was the case, there could be no prophecy. Because God would not know for sure if that's what's going to happen. Like, what if Pilate, when he said, I find no fault in him, and the crowd cried, crucify him, he said, I'm not going to crucify a man I found no fault in. I'm not going to do it. Could Pilate have done that? (laughs) Not too many heads shaking on that one. You're thinking right. He could not have done that. He had to do what he did. Why? Prophecy. God's plan. This is what was going to happen. Judas had to betray Christ. Had to happen. Why? Otherwise, God's will would not be fulfilled. So this goes to the end times, too. How, who, let's see, so you say, well, if God's decreed everything, okay, and he's elect, he's chosen who the elect are, he's chosen who will be saved, he's chosen who are going to be believers, he's chosen this, then I don't need to tell them, I don't need to spread the gospel. I need to preach the gospel. Hmm. Okay. That's fatalism. That's saying there's a fate decided. It doesn't matter what we do, the fate is still going to be accomplished. Now, let's be honest about this. That is true. What God has willed and decreed is going to happen. But his decree includes your actions. It includes his commands to us to do what he tells us to do. And our attempt at becoming more and more sanctified by obeying him more and more. So when he commands us to share the gospel, he is counting on us sharing the gospel when we have those opportunities we feel led by the Spirit to do it. And that person might be waiting for us to share the gospel with them. And that's when the Spirit's going to change their heart from stone in the flesh. It doesn't just happen. Did it just happen to you? Were you walking down the street and all of a sudden, I am saved? No. It didn't happen that way. You had to hear the gospel. You had to hear the And look, if you talk to somebody and you're talking to them about spiritual things, which is a great subject to talk about, everyone has thoughts on spiritual things, by the way. Everyone does. If you're talking to someone and they talk about it and they, give, they say that, they're not saved. Let me just tell you right now, you don't have to keep probing. They're not saved. God doesn't just save somebody like that. They have to hear the call. They have to be drawn. It has to happen. Are there places where we don't see, in Scripture and in real life, we don't see a specific process or pattern of message of sharing the gospel? Are there? Absolutely there are. Think about the thief on the cross. Did someone preach the gospel to him? No. He saw Christ. We don't have no idea what happened before that, right? He may have heard the Sermon on the Mount. He may have heard Christ's speech. Right? He may have heard these things. We don't know. But we do know that when we see him in the picture, this very, very, very brief glimpse of his life that we see, we see him recognizing Christ as the Son of God. We see him believe in Christ at that moment. And he's saved. How do we know? Christ says, 
Today we will be together in paradise. That's how we know. So does it look the same to everybody? No. But I remember hearing from a guy, a believer, quote unquote, that how he got saved was he sat at a red light at night and the light turned green and he didn't go for a second and then a semi barreled through the intersection. If he would have gone, he would have been killed and he knew right then that he was saved. That's not salvation. It's miraculous because he could have been. It was part of God's decree, right? But that's not salvation. So if you are talking to somebody and they tell some kind of a story like that, you need to recognize, you know, the first response is probably not, you're not saved. <laughs> There's going to be some shields that come up, so defensive comes up, right? But probably you should say, well, wait, let me ask you a question, because here's what the scriptures say. Show them what the scriptures say. You must be born again. Obviously you weren't born again because a truck didn't hit you. What was it? What happened? How do you know? Remember, Many in the last days will cry, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these different things for you? And he says, depart from me, you curse that I never knew you. Did they claim to be Christians? They did claim to be Christians. Why? We did all these things in your name. They did them in Christ's name. They cast out demons, performed miracles. All these things in Christ's name were saved. Sent to hell. Sent to hell. It is not good enough to accept someone just saying to you, oh, I'm a Christian, and not probe that. There's lots of, Mormons say they're Christians. Are they Christian? They don't believe in salvation. No, they're not. They don't believe in Jesus Christ the way the scriptures describe Jesus Christ. They're not. So you can't just say, well, they said they're a Christian, so I know they're a Christian. Hmm? That doesn't really mean they're a Christian. Does that mean you should question everyone who starts talking to you? <laughs> they say they're a Christian, you say, well, Explain to me the doctrines of grace. No. Walk me through the Romans road. No. No. But they should be able to give a testimony that relates that there's this point in their life. They may not remember all the details clearly. They may not be able to put a date on it. None of that matters. Where they felt the crushing burden of sin. They repented. They asked forgiveness for those sins. They believed in Jesus Christ. They should be able to point to that. We have to be careful of this because it's easy for people just to go to church all the time and believe Jesus because that's what they teach at church. There's a lot of people going to hell because of that. And they never hear the true gospel preached so they don't know the difference. So what should we do? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Why? Because God commands us to share the gospel. Are we going to be able to save somebody without God? No, of course we're not. Right? We have talked, well, many, many times we talk about the Spirit is the one that changes the heart from flesh to stone to flesh. That's where it starts. That's, the, that's, that's where it starts at that moment. Already elect, before the foundations of the earth, the next thing is the heart being changed from stone to flesh. Quickened, made alive. That's the next thing. Who does that? God. When does he do it? It's up to him. Some people, you've probably experienced this or you've seen this or you've heard of this, you preach the gospel, tell them 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 the gospel, never get saved. Others tell the gospel one time they get saved. 
Others should tell the gospel, tell the gospel, tell the gospel, tell the gospel. Last moments of their life saved. Others never saved. There's no formula to say this works this way every time. It doesn't. Which is why we must obey God and do as he says and share the gospel. Because we don't know how it's going to work out. We know that he has a plan. And if that plan is for that person to become saved on their deathbed, then that's what will happen. They will not die before his will is accomplished. That is his will. Right? And you say, well, yeah, but that's when you get in trouble. Yeah, but. Yeah, but if that guy would have got saved a year before, he knew so many people, he could have shared the gospel with all those people, a lot more people could have gotten saved. No, they wouldn't. Because God's plan wasn't that. God's plan was for him to get saved on his deathbed. That was the plan. That was it. It was never anything different. Could those other people, whoever that guy knew that you're in your story about how God should have done things different, my story, should, could they still get saved without that guy's influence? Yes. In fact, could they get saved because they hear that he got saved on his deathbed? Sure could. What a funeral that would be, right? Where the preacher can actually preach that this guy got saved on his deathbed, and here's what happened, here's how it looked, here's the description. You think that would mean something to the people that are sitting in the funeral, unbelievers and believers? Yeah, sure would. We can't think that somehow God is not intimately involved with every aspect of creation and does not control what's happening. He does. He does. We will review divine providence or God's plan in chapter 5 and free will, man's liberty of choice in chapter 9. So we will talk about these things more in depth. Obviously, I'm bringing up a lot of examples, talking about some of these things, but we'll look at what the scriptures specifically say about those things when we get to these two other chapters. So this portion of the, of the paragraph does have two scripture references, which I'll read right now. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So this is just pointing out in Acts chapter 4 that everything that happened with Christ getting arrested all the way through his crucifixion was happened because it was God's will. He had decided beforehand that it would be done. They were gathered together to actually accomplish this. John 19, 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. So even Christ is saying, look, you can't do anything to me. You can't crucify me, except that God gave you the power to crucify me. He's reminding them where this, where this comes from. The plan and the power came from God. It wasn't something that they accomplished on their own or without God. It's not the case. All right, so now we move on to the next section we were talking about from implying the error of fatalism. And actually before that, that was part of point number two, which is carefully guarded. Now point number three is practically viewed. Practically viewed. And this is actually the end of the first paragraph. Which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So we've talked through how God orchestrates and decides things. And now we end by saying, which, that all the things he decrees, which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing 
his decree. In other words, when we observe how God makes use of these means, we see God's wisdom. Does God have all wisdom? He does. So when we see God actually orchestrating things to come together, and we are often confused about why this happened, or this happened, or that person acted this way, or whatever the situation is, it's because God has wisdom. He planned it that way. He planned it that way. Now, you say, well, yeah, but I can think of some examples. I mean, I have some examples in mind that I'm not so sure that God actually was, you know, he planned this out, that maybe it was more of a random thing, that it couldn't happen the way that, I mean, if God was planning it, it would have happened different. It would have happened better. Okay, so better by whose standards? Ours instead of God's? So if we recognize that God has a plan for all things and that he has decreed what's going to happen, that should give us so much comfort so much peace that there was a reason that these things happened and we shouldn't be angry about them. That actually should help us with our sanctification. Do you know that no matter what happens, God has a reason that that happened? You know that door lock is not working. Right? So we have the door propped open. We gotta, sometimes we've had to go in the other doors. You know, the locksmith was already out here once. It's not fixed. God has a reason for that. You know, God had a reason when you got out of bed and you stubbed your toe. Or you got soap in your eyes. Yeah, that minute had a reason for it. Why? Well, you know, honestly, many times it appears those things happen because we need more patience. We need more patience. We need less anger. We need less frustration. We need more contentment. You know, when you stub your toe on something, it, you know, does anybody else ever stub their toe? Anybody else? Is there anybody? Okay. So when you stub your toe, it hurts. <laughs> you with me on that? Sometimes it hurts worse than other times. Would you agree with that too? Sometimes the little stub, sometimes the major stub. Sometimes you stand on step on a Lego. Oh, man. Those are like the most painful things in the world. It must, might as well be a tack. Those things are, oh, whew, they really hurt, especially on the sole of your foot. You know, you're walking at night. Ah. any rate. So when that happens, you, sometimes you make a noise, and that's normal, right? It's your reaction to the pain, right? But then the question is, do you get mad? Who left this Lego here? Do you get wilted? Oh, I can't believe someone would leave a Lego here. They know that this is where I walk, and it would hurt me. This is not a Lego minefield, right? I'm just talking about in your house. It's not Home Alone or something like that where they're trying to set up to get the bad guys. I'm just talking about common stuff that happens. This is just stuff that happens, right? You're cooking something, and you're carrying it from the stove to the counter, and it falls on the floor. <laughs> Ever done that? Ever had that happen? Yeah. And the reality is, is that we should do, what, you know, we kind of say it this way, but it's true. We should take it in stride. What's that mean? We keep going. You know when you get angry about stepping on that Lego, there's nothing that makes your foot feel better. That does not make your foot feel better. When you get mad that you stubbed your toe, when you're upset that you spilled the coffee on your shirt, it does not make your shirt cleaner. 
you drop that pot roast on the floor that you're trying to carry across with a fork and you thought maybe I should use something else, carry the platter over or something, but you use the fork and you carry it over and it slips off the fork because it's so tender, beautiful. Falls on the ground and now you're like, and it goes, because it's all so tender. It's like a perfect pot roast, right? And now it's on the floor. And the dog, before you can even say, you know, skippity-doo, boom, the dog's on it eating it. Then the debate is, should I tell him? <laughs> So you, but you see what I'm saying, right? What happens? It's easy for us to get upset in the moment, to not be patient, to not be gracious, and to be angry. Well, the first thing I would like you to focus on for your personal thinking is, this was God ordained. You should not go to the next step and say, "Why would God want this to happen?" It's not for you to question God. Just that it was it was part of the deal. What do you do? You just react. You know, if someone is in a car accident, and you're the first one to arrive at the scene, this is a really simple way to think about it. You're the first one to arrive at the scene, and you go up to the car that's it's wrecked, and you look in the window, and you see somebody is injured badly and bleeding. Not the time to step back and say, God, why would you allow this to happen? Why would this happen? I mean, God, come on, why would you, this is not right. This person, apparently they're young, they seem like they're a nice person as they gasp for breath. I don't know why you would, that's not, what, what do you do? You react, right? You clamp onto that bleeding, trying to stop the bleeding. See if you can do it with one hand while you call 911. You don't, you, don't, you don't react and be upset because it happened. You just react and do what you have to do. The roast falls on the ground, you pick it up. Unless you're just like, eh, okay, I guess that would, God got that one for the dog. Go ahead. Enjoy it, Fido. Right? No, you react. You do what needs to be done. If you stub your toe, usually helps a little bit if you rub it. Try to bring the blood back in, increase the circulation so that the pain goes away quicker. Not much more you can do than that. It's going to hurt. But God did plan that. That little insignificant Seems like it doesn't matter thing. That fly that flies in and lands right on the pot roast that's sitting on the table. God planned that too. So should you get mad about it? Sounds like that's happened to Elsie a few times. Right? Think about that, right? How about that big bug that hits right in the middle of your windshield, right where your view is, you know, (laughs) spread all over the place. God planned that too. So should you get mad about it? You shouldn't. We can't live life expecting that everything is going to be nice and rosy and it's going to go our way because that's the way that God would have it. That is completely opposite of your actual life experience. What God plans to be rosy for you is life in eternity. And if you've got to choose one, which one would you rather have the one that has problems and which one would you rather be the one that's perfect and that you're happy? Let's see, so 70, 80, 90, 100 years if you're blessed on earth or eternity in heaven? Eternity, right? So we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we shouldn't be like, I can't believe that this happened. This is where we're learning. This is where we're growing. This is where we're glorifying God. This is where we're doing what he's commanded us to do. This is where we're going to experience pain. This is where we're going to have regret. This is where things are going to happen, where we're going to mourn, where we're going to have suffering. What he wants is for you to take it as he would. 
did we not see Christ tortured to death? How many, how many verses are there in the scripture where Christ complained during that? None. None. Did he have anguish? He had anguish. Scripture tells us he had anguish. Was he anxious about what was going to happen? Sweat as great drops of blood, Scripture says, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knew it was coming. Knew it was going to happen. Was he concerned? Was he afraid? Did he show that he was not happy about what was going to happen? What did he pray? What did he ask God? If it's your will, take this cup from me. But he knew, because he knew the plan. It wasn't going to happen. His human side asked that. It's us. It's us. The goal is to be more like Christ. So once it started, what did he do? It's hard to imagine. He took it in stride. Took it in stride. Does that mean he didn't cry out? We don't see that, but he easily could have when the pain hit him, right? Easily. I would expect that. Not like he was so stoic that he didn't feel pain. He did feel pain. He did. R.C. Sproul said of this, The more we reflect on this and work through some of the apparent difficulties with free will, the more we realize that our destinies, our lives, and our children's lives in the final analysis are not exposed to the blind forces of chance or fate. This is our Father's world, and our lives are in His hands. His purposes, His purpose, and will are being brought to pass. So the more you think through this and the more you examine what the Scripture has to say about this, the more you see this truth. That it's not just random. It doesn't just that. We don't have to worry, oh, how's this going to go? What's going to happen for this? Or be concerned about that. And look, that's easy to get into. Especially when you're exposed to so much ridiculousness and bad things happening. Frankly, by social media and the press. You see so many things that are horrible, bad, things that are going on. And you're, you know, it's easy to get this anxiousness going that we're afraid of what's going to happen. This is a good quote we can know that there is no chance of what's going to happen. There is not some unseen force besides God that's in control. It's God. It's God. So you see in some movies, you know, this is a kind of a frequent existential thing that you'll see in movies. You read it in books, or certainly in books for many, many, many centuries. Is it fate that controls us? Heard this? Seen this? Is it fate that controls us, or is there no fate? And often, you'll see that in the, uh, the story, that the protagonist is faced with this dilemma, and they have made a decision. I don't believe fate controls things. I'm going to control my own destiny. Or, fate controls our destiny. We're just players. Right? They've made some fatalistic decision about which way they're going to go just not that simple well that's easy for people to say because it makes them feel more comfortable one way or the other either hey 
you know what, I can't control what's going to happen, so I'll just not worry about it, do what I do. Or they feel comfortable because they're like, you know what, I can do whatever I want to. There's nothing that's going to happen that's not, you know, as a result of what I'm doing. So, and I can't control it anyway, so I'll just let it go. Uh, neither one's true. The reality is, is that God is in control. God has established what your fate is. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And if you want to talk about the ultimate fate, the ultimate fate is not whether or not you're going to be successful on your current financial endeavor, whether or not you're going to be successful with how you raise your children, whether or not your roof is going to hold up in a storm, whether or not the crops are going to come in properly, whether or not your car is going to make it until you're able to find another one. That's none of those things. It's none of those things. The real truth is, the real thing that matters, the only thing that really counts is none of that. It's where are you going to be after you die. That's what matters. That's what counts. That's everything else prior to that. It's going to go by so quick. It's going to be a vapor. That's what, the, that's what Solomon described it as. Life is like a vapor. You, you've seen vapor. You know vapor. Vapor is like steam. That's a vapor, right? So if you see steam from a tea kettle on the stove, for example, or steam from a, the pot roast you just pulled out of the oven, that one, you see that steam, it, it's there for a second, and then where is it? It's gone. That's how quick Solomon says life is. And us younger girls in here and boys over there, they may not experience that yet, but the rest of us have. It's hard to believe how long it's been since such and such happened or since such and such happened or since this one happened or since I went there or since I did this. It goes so fast, does it not? It goes really fast. That's how life is. And bad things happen and good things happen. Stay gracious. Move through it. Know that God's in control. Nothing is going to happen without his say. It's going to be him. That's it. So next time somebody disappoints you, guess what? God's plan. Don't be confused. That does not mean you should become a blob and do nothing. Somebody says something and you don't react. It means you should react with grace, knowing this is God's plan. Does that mean you, still sh- you should just forget about it? You don't need to say anything to somebody who does something? It doesn't mean that. But it means you should take Christ's perspective. And you know, by the way, he did teach to, when someone strikes you to turn the other cheek. If someone takes something from you, to give them more. You, you remember that? That's how we should react. Knowing that God's decree is dictating what happens. That thief breaks in your house, God planned that thief to break in your house. It's planned. How should you react? By the flesh or by Christ's example? Two verses for this. Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent hath he said and shall he not do it or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good In other words if God says it's going to happen is it not going to happen of course it's going to happen Ephesians 1:3 to 5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us 
with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen to this. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Was it because of anything you did? Did you earn salvation? Did you earn election? Is there anything that you could do if it says specifically that he predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will? His will. Not your will. Not your actions. Not your decisions. Nothing you did. You cannot earn it. It's the pleasure of his will. And if you haven't experienced it, I'm shocked, but you find that there are people who get saved who you really think you're shocked that you couldn't believe they got saved because they're not good people. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> but we, do we think that? Do, is it, anybody else? You ever think that sometimes? Somebody gets saved, you're like, really? Alice Cooper? Alice Cooper saved? Yeah, Alice Cooper saved real good. Alice Cooper has turned on everything that Alice Cooper ever said and ever believed and is preaching the gospel continuously. Alice Cooper. You heard of Alice Cooper? Rocker? Shocking. And yet, you'll see good people who will die, go to the grave, never saved. It's the pleasure of his will. Not what we expect. It's not because that person did good all their lives. It's not because that person did evil all their lives. He saves whom he has chosen. He saves whom he's chosen. Okay, so now we've, you can be thankful, we have moved past paragraph one. Now we're on paragraph two. It's unconditionality. All right, paragraph two. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So this is a common heresy that God chose who's going to be saved by looking into the crystal ball of time, by looking into the future, seeing who was going to get saved, and then making them elect. Now this is very common. Evangelical belief, very common. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem for all the reasons that we've already talked about, and it's a problem that they recognize too. And this is the best they can do. That he looked down through the corridors of time, quote-unquote, to see the future, and once he saw them, then that's how he knew who was going to be saved. The question that should come to immediately following that statement is, then why did he call them elect? Why are they the elect? They just chose salvation. Wouldn't that mean that they actually are the ones, it's not his will, they called the Spirit somehow? Somehow, while they're dead, they reached over, turned the machine on, wait, 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 they grabbed the paddle and shocked themselves alive. Have you ever heard of that happening? It doesn't happen. Something that's dead can't bring itself back to life. That's what the Scripture specifically says. God does know the future, including what could have happened if he decreed differently. You know, there's lots, lots of literature, movies, etc., songs that have been written based on what if. 
What if things had gone different? What if this person didn't take this action, this one particular place would have changed world history, right? Is that interesting literature? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, right? There's a, there was a lot of them written about World War II, for instance. Like what if, if these key things that happened in the Allies fight against the Axis, against the Nazis, if that had not gone certain ways in specific battles, if the tide hadn't turned, could Germany have actually won? Could Hitler have taken over the United States? Could Hitler have marched around the world? Could the forces of darkness have advanced? So these are interesting books. Just no way could it ever happen. Couldn't have happened. Why? They are their own best examples. These miraculous things, these miraculous points of time where the battle turned, where somebody discovered something, where something went off course, where something didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen, and it ended up making us have victory over evil. Huh. It sounds a little bit like God planned it that way, doesn't it? That it wasn't a surprise, but that that was part of his plan for that to occur. God did not issue his decree because of what he saw in the future. The future happened and is happening only because of his decrees. And that's the difference. Did God just see what was going to happen and said, okay, so this is how this is going to work out? Uh, No. No. That would be God reacting to his creation, not creation reacting to God. Can you see a big difference there? And when we think about this subject, we have to try to get in our mind the immensity of God. And it's hard. Why? Because we automatically think of God in human terms. Okay? So, everybody just do me a favor for a second. Just look at the back of your hand. The back, look at the back of your hand. Just look at the back of your hand. All right? Now, everybody have a middle finger? Do you have a ring finger? Everybody, is anybody missing a ring finger? No. Okay. Look at the middle knuckle on your ring finger. It says middle knuckle right here. Middle knuckle right there. See that right there? That one? Look at that knuckle. Like when you have it flat, there's some, like some, usually a little bit, a couple lines, right, where the skin stretches. Now, look inside the, like bend your finger and look inside the stretch mark. And you might see it might be a little bit red in there, or it could be a little pink in there or something like that, right? That's what the entire universe is to God. Nothing. We are so minuscule. We are so small compared to God. Think about our universe and then go down to your knuckle. God, us. And that's not even a good description because it's smaller than that. In other words, we have to think how unbelievably immense God is and then view this. Are you going to let the crease in the knuckle of your ring finger control anything in your life? Are you going to tell that knuckle what to do your entire life? Yeah, pretty much you are, right? There's not some point where you're like, you know, I was on the computer, and my knuckle reached over and pushed the enter key at the wrong time. That's never going to happen, right? That's not going to be the way it is. The point is, is that we have to think about the fact that God is in control of everything because this is his creation, and it is so small, easily can he control it and manipulate it. We think about, you know, there's so much complexity in our world, right? There's so many people. There's so many things going on. The existence is unbelievably complex. 
all true, nothing to God. Not getting out of breath. Didn't have to hesitate because he had to figure it out. Wasn't that way. God is in control. And everything happens because he decreed it to happen. It didn't happen because he's surprised. It didn't happen because the knuckle reached out and touched the key. That would be an interesting quote later if someone just turns on sermon audio and hears that. <laughs> the knuckle did not reach out and turn the key. <laughs> it's okay. Nothing existed when God decreed. Therefore, God took nothing into consideration except his own will when he decreed all things. This means that no one counseled God when he decreed. He did not need to use his knowledge of the future to make his decree. He planned it. He didn't need to see what was going to happen and then make a decree that would fit. You see how that would not be, be a lesser God? Can you see that? I mean, every time you think about this, you just got to think about the fact that if you start putting these things on God and say, well, he didn't know, or this isn't planned, or man can do this and God doesn't know, or you're, what you're saying is God is not truly God. That's really it. Arminianism was dealt with at the Synod of Dort, 1618-1619. Arminians said God looked to the future, then made his decree. In other words, God's decree is based on the independent performances of man's free will. Now, this is what a lot of, I'm talking about a lot of churches believe this today, it's Arminian. Now, they don't call it Arminian, but that's exactly what the Arminian argument was, the followers of Arius. This was exactly what the, what the argument was, was that man decided, God looked to the future, and then that's what he said was going to happen. What? What did the Synod of Dort decide? That they were heretics. This is not scriptural. This is a gathering of the bishops from all the major churches that existed in the world at this time. Look, you can make a decision yourself and you can say, well, I think that this pastor is wrong. I think that this preacher is wrong. I think this ministry is wrong or whatever like that. You have no authority to decide that outside of Jesus Christ. You can have an opinion. You can have an opinion. But you alone are not in a position to criticize some church unless you know specifically they're violating the scriptures and their doctrine. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying there's a Baptist church down the road I'm not picking one, any Baptist church down the road, and you know that they believe Baptist, that Baptist is the name, so they probably believe baptism like we do, right? And you could say, well, yeah, but you know what? That's not a true church. I've heard Christians, quote, unquote, that say that. That's not a good church. That's not a true church. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Be really careful. Be really careful. The only examples we see in the history of the church are when the church fathers gathered together and made decisions like that. I'm not talking about individual members. Christ gave the keys to the church, keys to the church regarding individual members. I'm talking about decisions about other churches. And I've heard people say, that church, that's not a Christian church. If you don't see something specifically in the scriptures that's prohibited, don't say that. Don't say that. Could they be drawing lines where you're not drawing lines? They sure could. Guess what? You didn't always believe what you believe, did you? You've changed something. Maybe this issue. But don't decide what Christ's church has given the power to decide. Don't make the decision that this is not a Christian, this is not a church, when you don't know. You can say the evidence is that that may not be a true church. Doesn't seem like it would be good to go there. Good. Legit. Legit. But don't say, that's not a church. That's not a true church. 
Who's that authority given to? It's given to the church, not to us individually. Can we use judgment? We should use judgment. We shouldn't go to a church that appears to be violating God's word. Agreed? Like, we don't want to, you shouldn't be doing that. Can I talk about the Mormon church and say that's not a true church? I sure can. Yeah. Why? Clearly not following the scripture. I mean, doctrinally, they're not even on the same page. They can call themselves a church, but they're not a church. That's not even a debate. What about a Roman Catholic church? Hmm, now we're getting tricky. Because the Roman Catholic church, if, you're, if they're true to their doctrines, not a church. Not a church. Why? Their doctrine violates the scripture. Multiple times. Where do they get it from? Synods? Councils? Popes? That's where they got a lot of it. And they equate it with the scripture. There's a problem, right? When the words of men that are not inspired are equated with scriptures, there's a problem. Mormon church, right? The Book of Mormon. Same thing. Where did it come from? Two rocks and a hat. Won't go down that path. Trust me. You look it up. Two rocks and a hat. <laughs> Doesn't even sound right, does it? But it's true. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. God has planned what's going to happen. God has decreed what's going to happen. God decreed that the Armenians were going to rise and that he was going to deal with it. Get with me? That's how far it goes. But this idea that God did not plan what was going to happen and he just looked to the future is, unfortunately, if you think about this, you have a little problem here because this means there's... Un- where's, where do you draw the line? What was God in control of versus not in control of? I mean, if you're going to draw an arbitrary line and say, well, everything except for the decision for salvation, even though the word clearly says that it's God's will for who's going to be saved, I just read the verse, clearly says that it's God's will who's going to be saved, if you're going to, vi- if you're going to say that's not true, then what else isn't true? What else isn't God control over? You could Everything, right? Then, then he's in control of nothing. Obviously, Arminianism's view makes God and his decree subject to man's will. God has to work around what man's will, what man's will is, what man's will, what man wills. Applied to election, this becomes self-election, where God looks forward in time, identifies believers, then basically backdates. That's a good way to look at it. This would be like man makes his own decision, so he kind of self-elects himself, so God kind of does a backdate. He says, okay, well, they self-elected, so yeah, I'm going to put them on the list that they self-elected. See this? The confession clarifies this by stating there's no future without God decreeing it. The quarter of time is the one God decreed. In other words, the end of time comes from the beginning. He has decreed exactly how the world's going to end, and he's revealed some of that to us in his word, has he not? He's revealed some of that to us. Everything? No. How about the date? No. Hasn't revealed it. Which, by the way, if he had revealed the date, I don't think it would be the Greco-Roman calendar. Just saying. It would be his calendar. And frankly, it is his calendar. We just don't know what it is. A.A. Hodge said, This all-comprehensive purpose is not, as a whole, nor in any of its conditional elements, conditional. (laughs) Just bear with him. It is, it in no respect depends upon the foresight of events, 
not embraced in and determined by his purpose. It is absolutely sovereign purpose depending only on the wise and holy counsel of his will. In other words, you can't, you can't look at it and say, look, this is just going to magically happen. God's not in control of it. It's completely up to man what happens. That it's not because God actually gave it a purpose and planned on it to happen. So we talked about ignoring the fact the multiple scripture passages that talk about man's heart being stone and the, fle- the spirit turning it to flesh. Besides that clear evidence, besides the clear evidence of multiple, multiple scriptures about how God has chosen, it's according to his will, not their will, that they get saved. Besides all of that, besides all of that, it comes back to the point that what impacts you and influences you is in God's control. Right? So if you heard the gospel or didn't hear the gospel, God controlled that. I mean, if you say the only thing that God's not in control of is whether man gets saved or not, then okay, all right, so if that's the case, who controlled if he heard the gospel? Uh, well, that part, the gospel and the salvation, that, let's just say that's the part that man's in control of. But not besides that. Who controlled whether that person that preached the gospel learned the gospel? was motivated to share the gospel, was in that place to share the gospel with that person for whatever, whether it's a missionary in the jungle, whether it's a person talking to McDonald's, wherever it is, who put that man there? Well, that just happened. Okay, so now we're tell- the truth of the matter is, is that if you want to say that man makes his own decision about salvation, you are saying God is in control of nothing. Because everything that leads to that moment could not have been in God's control in that view. Are you with me? In other words, you are totally giving up on God's sovereignty if you embrace this. Now, if you went and talked to a pastor that preaches this, Arminianism, they preach that it's man's free will totally, man makes his own decisions, the only thing that man's, and you question him about those things, you're going to stump them. Because they don't have an answer for that. There is no good answer for that. You just take, take the argument away. Okay, so forgetting all the scriptures that say that it's God's will, not man's, forgetting all the scriptures that say that the Holy Spirit turns the heart from stone to flesh before someone's saved, forgetting all those scriptures, what part of creation is God not in control of for this person to get saved? Like, how much of their life that led to this point where they felt conviction and repented was God not in control of? How about all the times they heard the gospel in their life? God wasn't in control of any of those? That led up to this moment? You see what I mean, right? It's, it's like a self-defeating argument because the logic of it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. God's either in control or he's not in control of anything. That's the bottom line. The attributes of God, including his self-sufficiency, eternity, and immutability, all mandate his own ability to determine what will happen in his creation. If you believe any of these things, if you believe that he is totally self-sufficient, if you believe that he is eternal, if you believe that he never changes, he has to determine what happens in his creation. If you take that away, God doesn't determine what happens in creation, you're taking those things away. He's not self-sufficient. In fact, he's dependent on man to do the right thing. You see how that flips God into not God? Really quick. 
God's decree is comprehensive. It determines all things. Therefore, if it determines all things, none of these, those things can affect the decree. If God's decree affects all things and something in, that in, is in creation can't then change his decree. We don't have time to read all the scriptures. They're all going to be great points to what I was just saying. So we'll start with those next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.